everyone, and welcome back to Changing Healthcare, a podcast about accelerating transformation. I'm Deanne Kasim, Vice President Health Policy at Change Healthcare, and today I have the pleasure of sitting down with Kristen Ratcliffe McGovern, partner at Serona Strategies. Serona is a proactive strategic healthcare consulting firm that works at the intersection of healthcare policy, politics, and business. Kristen counsels clients across the healthcare spectrum on regulatory, legislative, and market dynamics. She joins me now to talk about all the latest congressional healthcare policy issues, pre and post midterm election considerations, key healthcare trends this year in policy, and so much more. Kristen, I want to ask you a little bit more about you, your background. So I see you began your career in the federal government, working in the Office of Management and Budget, commonly known inside the Beltway, of course, as OMB, and later moving on to the Department of Health and Human Services, also known as HHS. How did your early career working inside the government shape the way you look at your current role? Great question. So as you mentioned, I did start out my career inside government. I really became interested in healthcare policy because I believe that healthcare impacts everyone in some way. And when you're in the healthcare space, I think the the importance of policy and regulation really comes through because so much of what happens at the federal government ripples through the rest of the healthcare sector. So I think one of the biggest benefits and ways that my early experience shaped my current lens into the work that I do today is by giving me really an understanding of how the federal government works. Anyone who has tried to work with the federal government understands that process is very important. Hierarchy is very important. And, you know, there's just a certain way that things are are done within the government. And so working inside really gave me a view into that and um, helps me today on the outside as I work on behalf of my clients, understand the, the timing with which things can and, and should be done, the process that things need to go through and really sort of bring that insider's perspective to the work that we're doing now on the outside. Got it. Yeah, you're absolutely right about understanding how the government works and the impacts of regulation is, is a whole industry unto itself. And for those of us who have spent a lot of time inside the D.C. Beltway, it seems like it's just really is a way of life. Curious about what healthcare policy, what, what about policy interested you and your motivations to continue your work outside of working for the government? So I came to the government as a presidential management fellow. And so for those of you that don't know, that is a competitive two-year program for um, individuals with a graduate or a graduate degree or higher. So I had recently completed law school. I had a certificate in health law. So came to government service and specifically work at the Department of Health and Human Services through that route. I think one of the great things about that program was that I was able to dabble in a number of different, more targeted policy areas once arriving at the Department of Health and Human Services. So that gave me a vision into pursuing different health policy paths. So whether it was global health or government procurement or policy and program implementation, which is where I eventually landed, you know, it gave me uh, an opportunity. I, I knew that I was interested in healthcare. I knew that I was interested in, in the legal aspects of healthcare, but I didn't know exactly which route I wanted to go. And so that program really gave me an opportunity to try several different things and figure out what best suited my interests and my strengths. So, you know, I think that that is a little bit unique. And but underpinning all of the exploration I did through that program was really just the belief that 
healthcare impacts everyone in this country and that it is, you know, a, a rapidly changing, even though it doesn't always feel that way, a rapidly changing space with a lot going on and a lot of different avenues through which change can be made. Got it. Yeah, it, it certainly is an industry that impacts everyone and uh, definitely highly regulated. So um, on, on that note, I want to delve into a little bit more about your work at Serona. You counsel clients across um, a whole a whole huge spectrum because healthcare is such a huge spectrum of issues. You know, tell us a little bit more about your everyday work that you do with your clients. And I should say a caveat, uh, we had the opportunity to work together back in 2021 on some state issues and actually 2020 as well. So I really appreciate that. Um, and I know that you guys cover a lot. Yes, yes. So it um, it was great to work together. So at Serona, we do a, a range of, provide a range of different topics. So and then the types of work that we do very, really varies based on our client needs. So after coming out of the government, I had the opportunity to go to a large law firm here in D.C. and to work with former Senate Majority Leader Tom Daschle in a practice that was policy focused, but really also taking a deeper dive into how legislation and regulation impact business strategy. So when my partner Krista Droback and I started Serona, Almost eight years ago now, we took that experience that we had um, working in that really very unique group here in Washington, D.C., and applied it to our client work. So today we work on behalf of um, individual companies or nonprofits or associations, and we also manage several coalitions. And so the, the coalition work that we do is really bringing together stakeholders and companies and interested parties on a particular topic. So we run a telehealth coalition called the Alliance for Connected Care we run a home-based care coalition called Moving Health Home, um, as well as a number of other coalitions. And so those are really targeted efforts that bring people together. On behalf of our individual clients, we really target our work based on their need. So some, uh, you know, some of our clients may be interested in congressional or administration lobbying. Some of them are more interested in the business strategy aspects side of things. So, you know, CMS just put out a new regulation. What does that mean for me? How should I be developing my my product offering to either take advantage of regulations or to avoid the regulations. We also do thought leadership and help our clients figuring out, you know, where should they be speaking? Where should they be putting, you know, op-eds and on what topics? Who should they be building relationships here in, in Washington, D.C.? So it really is a very diverse practice and, and group that we've built here at Serona. Great. Well, thank you for that overview. So you mentioned something, the Alliance for Connected Care, and I want to delve into that because I know telehealth is one of their key issues. And that is also important to, I know, our customers here at Change Healthcare. Can you talk a little bit more about that coalition and where we are with telehealth moving post-pandemic? I know that there is a big call right now in Congress to make some of those waivers not only extended, but to look at policy moving forward beyond the pandemic for how telehealth can be used and paid for. Right. Well, the importance of telehealth during the pandemic cannot be understated. We have been through the Alliance Connected Care working on telehealth back since before it was cool um, to be working on telehealth. So for the you know entire eight years since we've been at Serona and even um, even before that. So we've been working on this issue for a long time because federal regulations have really not kept pace with the way that people want to experience care and the technologies that we have today. So I think that was really on display during the pandemic. And, you know, as people were staying home and not going to their usual source of care or needing to connect into providers, 
who were newly standing up telehealth technology, we saw just an explosion in the use of that particular delivery mode, this mode of delivery of care. So, you know, I think as we think about where we might go with telehealth after the pandemic, I think it it is, is very much an open policy question. So as you mentioned, a lot of the telehealth usage, particularly at the Medicare level, has been made possible through waivers of regulations that otherwise restrict the use of telehealth for Medicare beneficiaries. And similarly, I think we saw, you know, a number of state actions at the state levels, you know, where there were um, individual state declarations around the, the public health emergency around licensure and other flexibilities that just made it easier for patients to connect care through telehealth. So as we look to the end of the PHE, you know, which will likely be in January or or later in 2023, the question is to is what it looks like when those waivers expire. So we did um, see earlier this spring, Congress pass a bill for a 151-day extension of some of these waivers to make telehealth possible. We also have seen the House earlier this summer pass a bill on telehealth, and that was a bill that was introduced by Representative Cheney. So it was passed through the House, and in a sense, that just extends the deadlines on the existing provisions um, to allow them to go until December 31st, 2024. So that has not passed through the Senate. We have no action on that in the Senate yet. So I think that is one thing that we are looking for at the end of the year is to see if that extension passes the Senate. Otherwise, I think the question becomes, you know, exactly when does the PHE end and what administration authorities are there to continue reimbursing for some of this care and allowing the care to to continue to be offered to patients in their homes and other non-healthcare settings. Great. Well, that's a that's a thorough overview. And I know on that topic, I wanted to kind of skip around to there's a lot of things that we're looking for end of congressional session. And I think it's going to be real interesting in terms of what gets done really in the lame duck, because I think at this point with two weeks left in the in the month of September and a lot of business that needs to be done, including funding the federal government, most likely all but guaranteed to be done in a continuing resolution, which means Congress will have to come back after the election, of course, and continue to hash out how to fund the, the federal government, because, of course, the fiscal year ends September 30th for the federal government. What are some of the other issues that we're hoping they will address? And I can just kind of set the table. I know we are really hoping for a privacy law to get past this Congress. And we can go into all the different possibilities of what might happen in the states if that doesn't happen. But, you know, what are some of the other issues that you're really looking to see Congress act on besides telehealth, besides a data privacy law? Right. Well, as you mentioned, I think we're in crunch time here and we have the little matter of an election coming up in November, which historically means that members of Congress are back home for large parts of September and October leading up to that election. So that means not a lot of work is getting done here in D.C. I think as far as the continuing resolution, which is, again, must pass by the end of this month, what we are hearing is that it's likely to be a relatively clean, which means just funding the government and nothing else. Um, so a relatively clean continuing resolution, probably through early to mid-December. So they will kick the can down the road until after the elections, which of course really alleviates any pressure and also, again, allows people to be back in their districts. So we'll see likely a short-term clean CR by the end of this month. And then that means that when they come back from the election, you know, in the lame duck period, that time in between the election and the end of the year is really when we will see 
likely additional action on one other legislative vehicle, which will be a bigger end of year package. So that would include funding the government, at least ideally through the remainder of 2023 fiscal year. But again, that remains to be seen whether or not we'll get we'll get that far, but some funding for the government at least. And then, as you mentioned, there are a number of other priorities that people would like to see. At the end of this year, there are a number of Medicare and Medicaid provisions that expire. Those are, we generally call those extenders. So there's just a short list, maybe more than five, less than 10 of extenders that need to be expired. So those programs will otherwise end if they're not extended. So Congress generally takes action on sort of that that low-hanging fruit of those extenders Also, Congress is perceiving um, FDA user fee legislation as must pass. Again, that's legislation that allows the FDA to collect user fees to fund some of its work. And so those would expire. Those the current authority would expire if not extended. So that's really the bucket of low hanging fruit. Other things that people are definitely looking for Congress to potentially do something on would include telehealth, would also potentially include mental health would include that data privacy legislation that you mentioned. And I think maybe more in the terms of, you know, aspirational would be some kind of pandemic preparedness bill or some kind of public health modernization legislation. I think that last one is the least likely of all of those things potentially that would be included in an end of year package. But definitely there's a wish list. And, And the last thing I'll say on this is, you know, as we look to the next session, another thing you have to think about what's moving and what's not moving is that some members of Congress will either be leaving Congress or will be retiring. Some of these are legacy issues for these members of Congress. And so what really rises to the top, I think, remains to be seen. I agree with you. I think the lame duck session after the midterm election is going to be jam packed. I think there are going to be a lot of incentives to get some of those important issues you mentioned done. And I think also what I've seen from our state team here is if two things, privacy and mental health, if we don't get policies passed through Congress, states, which are often state legislatures, of course, called the laboratories of democracy, will really pick up on those two issues, among many other issues, of course. But that sort of concerns me, particularly on the privacy issue simply because with every state and so many of those policies are different, right? California's privacy law is different than Colorado, which is different than what Utah tried to do, which is different than the approach that Connecticut tried to do. And I think it's going to be a real compliance headache for not only healthcare companies, but of course, a lot of companies. So, you know, watch that space. I know we definitely are. Changing gears a little bit, there is a whole lot of work going on on the regulations that are coming out, whether they're proposed or We're waiting on a bunch of things that are going to be final rules. You know, some of the things that we track here, of course, at Change Healthcare have been anything about interoperability, anything about privacy, anything touching Medicare Advantage, Medicaid, and of course, electronic prior authorization. We're also reaching, you know, waiting on a final rule out of uh, Office of Civil Rights talking about an update to the HIPAA privacy and security rule. But You know, what are your thoughts on all these regulatory trends? Because you've been in it for a very long time. So, you know, just curious about your thoughts and what do you think will what do you think will have the biggest impact on the industry in terms of all these different regs that are in the hopper? So we are in the period of time here in September where we have, uh, you know, had a number of annual regulations proposed over the summer. Comments have been submitted. The comment periods are mostly closed. And now the administration is deliberating on the feedback they've gotten from the agency. So as we look to the fall, I think definitely, you know, we will see those calendar year 2023 Medicare regulations, the payment regulations finalized. 
ideally before or around November 1st, so that all of the changes can be made to go into effect on January 1st. So we'll see that as far as a bucket of activity and some of the things focused on for the Medicare fee-for-service in particular included value-based care, health equity, and a number of policy changes to promote uh, administration goals um, and use the physician fee schedule, that, that payment rule, as a tool for doing that. As we look to health IT, also very active fall on the horizon here. We have had a very active year in the health IT space in general. I think many of your listeners will probably know that the Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT inside HHS recently, as a result of the 21st Century Cures Act, finalized a patient access and information blocking rule. Those deadlines and dates are going into effect, so different deadlines and dates over the next couple of years here for various regulations included in or various requirements included in that regulation. It is now time to do another <laughs> another patient access and interoperability rule to make updates to the EHR certification criteria and other regulatory requirements related to information blocking and other programs like the EHR reporting program, for example, that ONC runs. So there is a rule right now that is in the final stages of clearance, should be out in October, November. It will be a proposed rule. There will be a comment period. So we are we are at the beginning stage with respect to that NPRM as far as advocacy and work around new requirements for EHRs and interoperability. I should note, given your interest in prior authorization, that that rule is expected to include some prior authorization requirements, particularly functionality that could or should be built into certified EHR technologies. So that is on the horizon. I think we also, on the in the health IT space, have outstanding final rule for civil monetary penalties for information blocking for some types of networks exchanges and health IT developers. Again, that is expected this fall. CMS is also working on an interoperability proposed rule that would have implications for payers that, again, not under final review yet, but expected to be under final review any day now and to be out later this year or beginning of next year. And then that HIPAA rule that you mentioned, likely to be out first or second quarter of next year. I think the target date is March of 2023, but certainly as the administration thinks about post-decision in the Roe v. Wade case and some of the data privacy issues that they're concerned there, building in some of that thinking and a policy potentially into either a final reg or some, some kind of additional regulatory action in the HIPAA space. You're absolutely right. In the world outside of the Dobbs decision, you know, that's another incentive for Congress to look at privacy of health data and again, if I just I'm going to keep hammering on this, but I feel like if we don't get something out on the federal level, the states will continue to take up the mantle come January when they gavel in for their legislature. So, yeah. And I will say just on the comprehensive privacy legislation front, that landscape does continue to evolve. We are as far as we have ever been in getting a comprehensive privacy bill. There is a bill, the American Data Privacy and Protection Act, that has passed out of committee in the House. I think. We have seen Speaker Pelosi raise some concerns with that bill because of its perceived misalignment with the standards that are in place for privacy in California. So unclear whether she would bring that bill to a vote in the House. On the Senate side, I think there are some members of Congress there that wouldn't want to see tweaks to the House bill. So I don't think that we're, unfortunately, I don't think we're right on the cusp of getting that done. But I do think that we are as far as we've ever been, and it will be 
top of mind coming back next year, certainly if there is a shift to Republican control in either chamber. So so hopefully some relief on that front sometime soon or some movement on that legislation. Right. Right. No, that's a really good analysis of what we can expect. As usual, um, a lot of what we try to project for the end of congressional season, we're just looking into our respective crystal balls that for whatever it's worth, (laughs) we try to do the best of reading the tea leaves. So I appreciate your analysis. Switching gears again, back on the, the regulatory side, the CMS Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, otherwise known as CMMI, I think Liz Fowler, who, of course, runs that team, has been doing an excellent job with her her team of really looking at models to date, what makes sense, how to incorporate health equity, which is one of the pillars, of course, of CMS's strategic plan. You know, moving forward, what is your take on any new or meaningful models to date, such as ACO Reach, and what are you looking forward to as we move into calendar year 2023? So earlier this year, the administration set a goal. We like to have goals in the government. So they set a goal of having all Medicare beneficiaries and the majority of Medicaid beneficiaries in an accountable care relationship by 2023. The Center for Medicaid or Medicare and Medicaid Innovation released what they called a strategy refresh document last August and have been working since then to flesh out the details under that strategy and to make progress towards implementing models and approaches that would help them be on a path to achieving that goal. So some of the most high profile uh, developments that we have seen, one is the say modification of the existing global and professional direct contracting model into a new program called the ACO reach model. CMMI has been spending a significant amount of time um, trying to get that program up and running. They recently announced 110 new ACOs are poised to potentially be starting that program in January. So there's a lot of turning the cranks behind the scenes to get that up and running. I think later this fall, we will see them announce the 2021 results for the ACOs that started the program, the the Global and Professional Direct Contracting Program in 2021. So we'll see that later this fall. And in the meantime, they have announced recently a new oncology model They have announced that they will not be proceeding with the radiation oncology model, um, which I think was uh, not really a surprise, or at least it's not starting, it's indefinitely delayed. So not starting anytime soon. And then beyond these model-specific activities that we've seen them announce, they are, as you mentioned, really focused. They did a review of the health equity aspects of their models and recently published those results. They are very focused on patient-centered model design. So what terms, how do patients understand value-based care and their experiences with these models? How are we talking about these models? So they have been focusing there. I think coming up this fall, we expect them to release a white paper with a one-year look back on the steps they've taken to implement the strategy refresh since it was released in August of 2021 at this point. (laughs) And we also expect the announcement of a specialty care model. So that could include building bundles into ACOs and some strategies for doing that, as well as some possibly some other strategies for engaging specialists. And then we also understand, and I don't know if it will be before the end of this year or not, and it could again be bundled into the specialty care strategy, but some focus on dementia care. So they are moving forward and sort of tidying up the shop with the models that they have and implementing the models that they have and reorienting them around this administration's priorities. 
at the same time as they develop and launch new strategies and ideas for achieving those goals that they set. Right, right. Well, thank you for that overview. Lots of moving pieces over at CMMI for sure. I know I'm bouncing around like the agenda here, but I think we've got so much to cover that just kind of segues from one into the other. You know, one of the things that I wanted to do a deeper dive on with you is the mental health packages. I know that was something that started in this Congress early. There was five work streams that was announced between parity and insurance coverage and staffing and workforce, as well as youth mental health. I know that we talked about what we hope hopefully we'll see at the end of the year in a lame duck, something passed on that. And there's been a lot of work to date, but I wanted to do a deeper dive on this because I think it's so important to all sectors of healthcare and, and just really the public in general. But what do you see like realistically in terms of some sort of fix on mental health? What do you think their focus is going to be on? I personally, I'm a little skeptical of getting all five work streams passed in a package, but I could be wrong. Hope I'm wrong. But you know, what, what problems do you see being focused on the most? What do states need to think about? I know when you and I talked for prep of the show, we definitely were talking about the um, continuing opioid crisis and fentanyl crisis, which is, you know, has not gone away despite the fact that for the last two and a half years, most focus has been on COVID. Right. Okay. So starting with Congress, as you mentioned, there have been a number of work streams. So when you think about how Congress passes a bill and how this all comes together in general, there's a couple approaches. One is that a few people, generally leadership and maybe some other influential members of Congress get together and come up with something usually in secret or relative secret. And then, you know, it comes out and that's the bill and we all vote for it and it passes. The other model is for legislation to develop more organically through the various committees in the Senate and the House. So this model is really more, if you're thinking about the two, really more of a bottom-up sort of approach where a variety of different input is considered. We move through relative regular order where there are hearings and, and various opportunities for members of Congress to help shape the legislation and drive their priorities. So this mental health approach has really been the latter, uh, more of a regular order, grassroots, um, bottom-up type approach to legislative development. So we have seen on the the Senate side, we have seen the Senate Help Committee, which is focused on healthcare as its jurisdictional issue. And we have the Senate Finance Committee, which have been active and have various pieces of these potential mental health package. On the House side, we have the House Ways and Means Committee, which has jurisdiction over the Medicare and Medicaid pieces. And then the energy and commerce side of things, which has been focused on SAMHSA and HRSA and and many of the grant programs. So all these committees are in different places as far as where they are in the process of developing their ideas and moving the ideas through their committees. I think because um, we are in different places and different committees, it is unlikely that we would see all of the committees complete their work, build it into one big package that moves definitely before the end of the year. I think that is a very unlikely scenario. But what I think we will see is continued release of proposals from the Senate Finance Committee. So they have released a telehealth and I think a children's health proposal to date, and they are working on additional proposals related to workforce care coordination and parity. So we will see, I think, additional pieces of those idea and and packages come out of the Finance Committee. And then You know, I think, again, sort of going back to we need a crystal ball to figure out what's going to happen at the end of the year. I think we definitely will not 
probably despite that this is a very important, critical, bipartisan issue, I don't think that we will see a standalone mental health bill before the end of the year. But what we could see is leadership in either the House or the Senate or, or, you know, both as the case may be, pull out those pieces that are most ready and put them on an end of year package. So we mentioned, you know, this bill in September is going to be clean, short term, ideally kick the can kick the can to early to mid-December. And then that mid-December bill is where we might see some of these mental health pieces be pulled out of their relative committees and be deemed ready to go on an end of year package. So I think we could see some, we could see some, some of those proposals move this year, but there will be enough left behind that I think this will be a topic for next year as well. Yeah, I, I agree with you. There's, as we mentioned earlier, there's an awful lot on Congress's plate before you know the December holidays and the ending of this Congress, of course. So with that, just to, okay, we're going to pretend like we're the Cook Report for a second. And for those of you listening, the Cook Report does, um, their whole goal is to analyze elections on the state and federal level. But what do we see for the rest of the Biden administration in terms of health care priorities? And I know we're asking a lot because Congress could flip one house to Republican control. It could flip both houses to Republican control. It could have a slim majority. We just really don't know. But, you know, what, if you had to just kind of prognosticate, what do we see for the remainder of this administration in terms of what gets done? What are your thoughts? Yes, that's a hard question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think that we, you know, certainly if we see either the House or the Senate flip to Republican control, we will see a lot of oversight of this administration. And what that looks like are committees of jurisdiction calling hearings where various officials have to come and explain themselves and why they did certain things or why they didn't do certain things. When you're inside the government, what that looks like is a lot of prep for people that have to go up in front of Congress, a lot of answering letters. You know, another way that oversight can can be conducted is a member of Congress sends a letter to CMS and it basically says, explain yourself. And then you have to pull all the documents and get the responses together. So oversight can really, really bog down an administration because it takes people and time to be able to respond to those requests. And of course, to maintain a collegial working environment between Congress and the administration, you want to be responsive. So if either chamber in the in Congress flips, the administration will find itself spending a lot of time on oversight. And what that means is that they won't have as much time to spend on some of the other things that they might want to do. I think as far as what we would see if both chambers remained in Democratic control, I think it'd look very similar to what we've seen over the last two years, which is continued response on the public health crises. I think while using sort of the regular order regulations and executive orders and other announcements to continue to make really incremental change. And, you know, I think they're also going to be very focused on, again, no matter what happens with Congress, they're going to be very focused on the unwinding of the public health emergency because that will come to an end, most likely. I mean, I don't think it's going to go on for another two years. So it will come to an end, I believe, at some point next year. And then that's going to set off a whole series of things we've talked about a little bit here that states are going to need support with and providers are going to need support with because this PHE has been going on so long that some of the flexibilities have enabled really a change in the way that we deliver care and operate as, as a healthcare system. And so I think we probably don't even know if everybody wrote down their list, which people have, uh, including the administration, if everybody wrote down the list of the way that they're using the flexibilities that are available to them, you might miss something because you don't even realize you've been doing it for so long now. You don't even realize that you were using a waiver or some sort of flexibility 
to do something. And so there is going to need to be, I believe, a, a big focus, at least over the next year and probably through the rest of this administration on transitioning back to a regular order and what does it look like after the public health emergency ends. So all of that is to say, probably, possibly, depending on what happens on the elections and what you believe about the polls, um, sometime on oversight, general, regular, regulatory order with proposed, you know, sort of going through the normal chain of things on regulation, and then a lot of time on the PHE unwinding and responding, a continuing response to monkeypox and polio and all of the other sort of emerging concerns. And don't forget drug negotiation either, Deanne. <laughs> we, gotta, yep. we will be dipping our toes into the water of drug negotiation for Part B as well. So That's right. That's right. CMS is putting the team together now. They'll be working on that, that bill that passed about uh, negotiating drugs for Medicare. So good point. No shortage of issues to cover. I want to also just mention when you say unwinding PHE, the importance of that to the Medicaid program. We support a number of Medicaid payers. We also have solutions here that do, they look using different algorithms and and look at data to decide where folks could get coverage if they don't already have it, whether they're Medicaid eligible or dual eligible, or perhaps they're eligible for some other coverage through state grant programs or whatever might exist out there. That's really important. And I know Medicaid programs are very nervous about, of course, when the PHE ends, that additional, um, basically because states were, of course, not permitted to do Medicaid redeterminations during the public health emergency, that's going to be a lot of work on the states to go back and do that redetermination. So what are your thoughts there? I know we're seeing a bunch of different policies come out that will hopefully help states be able to do that, but it will be a big shift for a number of Medicaid recipients. It's going to be a very big shift. So um, as you mentioned, during the PHE, the states have not had to do the redeterminations that they otherwise would have been required to do, which means that there are some Medicaid beneficiaries that are currently covered by Medicaid who are no longer eligible for one reason or another and should not be receiving those services. So once the PHE, the public health emergency is lifted, those redeterminations will resume. States will have 12 months to initiate the redeterminations and 14 months to complete all of their actions. Now we are seeing states, so states have worked with HHS to put together their individual action plans on how they're going to do this. It requires, again, time and people and a lot of potential disruption for Medicaid beneficiaries. So the administration is very involved in working closely with the states to try to make sure that this is done in an orderly way. But we are seeing a range of different approaches in various states. So, for example, Pennsylvania is planning to complete all of their redeterminations in six months. So rather than, you know, take the full 14 months, they're going to do it in six I think uh, Utah said that they're going to take the full amount of time. So they're going to spread it out. And then um, my understanding is there's a bill in Ohio that would require the Medicaid program to do it in three months. So different speeds in different states across the country, different approaches, which means that when you think about the patient experience, the Medicaid beneficiary experience, the stories of people losing coverage will just drip, drip, drip all throughout the 14 months because it's going to be, you know, a big problem in Ohio for the first three months and then a big problem in Pennsylvania. And then, you know, it's all across the country, depending on the timing of their redeterminations. So states are choosing again, in sort of um, not a uniform way. They're choosing how they want to sequence their populations, how they want to go about, you know, do they start at A and go to Z as far as last names, or do they 
target redeterminations based on some other set of criteria. Some states are choosing to process redeterminations for higher acuity patients or higher risk patients first. Others are starting with their expansion populations and saving the more vulnerable populations for last. So there is some strategy here, although it varies across states as far as how they're going to you know, target working through these redeterminations. So a lot of variation in the speed with which they'll do it and a lot of variation in the starting place that they'll do it. I know a big issue has been correct address and data. So making sure that they have, you know, if, if the last information that you had on a beneficiary was before the PHE, there's a high likelihood, particularly for the Medicaid population, that that person may have moved during the, the, the pandemic. And so making sure you can actually find people to get their updated verification documents is a big part of the challenge. So there is no way we will get out of this. I'll call it now crystal ball at its best. There is no way we are getting out of this without significant disruption for this population. Right, right. Well, thank you for your thorough explanation there. That is something that my entire team, both the state team and the federal team have just really kept our eye on that ball for a whole bunch of reasons to best support our customers, of course, in that space. But as you mentioned, this is going to be so much of this is going to be disruptive. The pandemic was disruptive by itself, but now getting out of that that policy, public health emergency phase, a lot of work to do. So I appreciate that. We've covered a lot of ground and I appreciate all of your insights and wisdoms because this has been so helpful and I hope our listeners find it helpful. Before I let you go, I wanted to ask, what advice do you have for anyone who may want to get involved on any of the issues we discussed, whether through grassroots or a coalition, such as the Alliance for Connected Care, you know, what would you recommend to make sure that their voices are heard? Well, if you're an individual out there, I recommend that in your personal capacity, you educate yourself about the issues that are important to you and the elected officials or candidates in your area and that you vote. So that would be my number one piece of recommendation just for as, as citizens and you know taxpayers out there for everyone to get involved in the political process. If you are thinking about how you might get involved for your corporation or your nonprofit or your association, certainly uh, I think find your fellow travelers. So there are is a lot of activity. And you mentioned the Alliance for Connected Care. And, you know, I mentioned some of the other coalitions that we run. There are many, many formal coalitions and ad hoc groups that have convened around specific areas. And so I think Find your fellow travelers, figure out how you can pitch in, whether it's in the form of data or time or, you know, some other resource that you have to make progress on a particular issue. If anyone is interested in any of the coalitions that we run, I'm happy to, you know, talk to anyone about those coalitions and the the work that we're doing and the opportunities to get involved. So we have the Alliance for Connected Care on telehealth. We have Aligning for Health on social determinants of health. We have a home-based coalition uh, called Moving Health Home on home care, and we have a number of coalitions on value-based care as well. So I'm happy to talk to anybody about those issues, but my best advice is exercise your um, your right to vote as, as a private citizen and as corporations and entities in the healthcare space, find your fellow travelers and figure out how you can pitch in. Well said, well said. Thank you, Kristen. Kristen, I want to thank you for being on the show today and telling us all about the most important issues that Congress needs to resolve by the end of this year and so much more into, of course, 2023 and beyond. Thanks as well to our listeners. Please remember to leave a review and subscribe. I'm Deanne Kasim, and this has been Changing Healthcare, a podcast about accelerating transformation.